Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, the podcast where we explore how assisted reproductive technology changes lives in our world. It allows people to become parents who never thought it was possible in ways that we never could have imagined possible. We are here because we love to tell those stories that go beyond that technology and talk about real lives, real people, and real professionals, too, who uh, really make a huge difference. Um, so, uh, Ellen, uh, mm-hmm. Christmas is coming up. Yeah. And, and Hanukkah and, and Hanukkah other and, holidays. And all, all, but, but here's the that doesn't that, that that's not relevant to my question mm-hmm. here. Is what are you getting me for Christmas? Oh, I can't tell you. I mean, it's good. Okay, it's really Fine. good. But obviously, Fine. I can't tell you otherwise. Okay, so, so then turn it the other way. Then, what was your favorite Christmas present ever? Then, oh, what did you give me? What are you giving me this year? <laughs> nice try. To Starbucks. Is it? <laughs> always, all bribes always are gift cards to Starbucks. <laughs> uh, right. No. Oh, do you have a favorite? Uh, I don't know. I, I definitely remember one Christmas when we were kids that we got an aquarium, like a huge aquarium. Oh. And I, I think maybe it was just like the age I was or something, but it just that year felt like really magic. Mm, I, um, I actually I'm do. I'm not sure it was the gift. It was probably the age. Oh, I can think of one like that too. So one year I wanted a giant polar bear. You probably remember that. Uh, I remember. Um, I remember I its name. Do you totally remember its name? got a giant polar bear, and I had that polar bear for most of my life. I think until yeah, recently. Yeah, but uh, his name. You named him Leroy. I yep. remember that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Leroy. Okay. Leroy. Oh, I miss you, Leroy. Man. Oh, all uh, right. Fine. Yeah, he was Fine. the best. Enough reminiscing on to actual <laughs> Okay, on to the actual episode. And this is a really good one. I'm very excited about it. So, I mean, they're all good, but this one especially. Um, so we have Kim Surratt um, we, on today. We interviewed her. And this is one of two interviews with her. So she is so impressive and has so many interesting stories that really we this could be like one of a million. Um, but this first one, we are talking to Kim about her background, which is incredibly impressive. She is also an attorney in assisted reproductive technology and just, um, you know, someone I really look up to and I see her speak all the time and um, really an expert. And aside from being an expert, she kind of led and, you know, worked with other people as well as a group, but um, she helped lead the charge in having an assisted reproductive technology um, bill passed in Nevada that would support families who were growing and might need to turn to surrogacy. So um, very impressive, very amazing. And we are excited to talk to Kim Surratt. We are here with Kim Surratt. Kim, welcome so much to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so you have so many talents and are known for so many things. Um, I will say that our hope today, in, and we plan on doing multiple episodes with you. So for those who are really excited about having Kim on, there's be more than one episode. Um, but for this episode, we really want to talk about kind of your journey to assisted reproductive technology law, as well as legislative work. And you've been really big in that area. So my plan was to talk about your background, learn your story, and then talk about how you move mountains and change change the entire state of Nevada and change laws. Um, okay. Where, where did, <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, even a better story. So um, how did it all begin, Kim? 
Well, uh, the lobbying started completely separate from all of the reproductive stuff, quite I, honestly. I was, was going to say, no, no, we need to go back. How, how did it all begin? At first, you were born, and then... Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, 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 you should talk about your background. You have a really no, interesting background. You totally do, where you're like Texan, <laughs> but like Nevada. No, you should tell well, me. Yeah, my, fam- my family's all from Texas. No one, my brother and I were the first born outside of Texas. So my grandmother, we were born in New Mexico and she'd always make comments about how uh, she was very upset my parents could not make it over the border. Wait, wait, wait. Um, you were born in, I, I have to ask, New you were born Mexico. in New Mexico. So wait, but, yeah. so we're from New Mexico originally. So we have to, we have to hear, where in New Mexico? I was born in Grants. Grants? And okay. I lived in Grants till I was eight. And then I lived in Albuquerque till I was 13. Wow. See, that would be really hard to make it across the border since that's on the opposite side from Texas. Right? Right. <laughs> my grandmother looks at it as a foreign country. Yeah. So. <laughs> right? A lot of people still do. It's okay. <laughs> it's not Texas. Anything but Texas is foreign. Yeah. So. That's fair. Yes. That's funny. But yeah, no, my dad was in mining, which brought us to Nevada. So we ended up in Winnemucca, Nevada, um, which is all mining, very small town, very rural. And uh, not that Grants wasn't small. So you went to school, you grew up essentially between New Mexico and Nevada then. What- True. And you went to college in Nevada then? You're- no, I, uh, I left Nevada and I went to the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. Totally natural. And really, truly, as a rural kid, cowgirl, um, I picked it because they sent me a brochure that had ivy growing up a brick wall. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> Ivy League, right? It's got a- <laughs> okay. They have moisture and they have things that grow. <laughs> Um, no, literally, I I did early admission there, and I never applied to another university. It was a liberal arts university, and I took off. And I, my whole goal was to get out of small town Nevada, and uh, get up to Washington. And it was a complete foreign world to me. But and, and despite honestly, I had parents who really worked their butts off on traveling with my brother and I, and exposing us to things. But no matter what, when you're in a small town. You just, there's not, there's a lot of things you don't get exposed to. So we, I, I went to the University of Puget Sound, like I said, liberal arts. So, so what were, I, what were the biggest shockers when you went off to college from a small town? Uh, the LGBT community, uh, just no exposure in Winnemucca at all. And, uh, HIV AIDS, uh, prevention and education was huge in the Tacoma area and Seattle area. At that time, AIDS was still a uh, very viable threat, and the education portion of that was huge, all of which I had zero exposure to. So it uh, it was eye-opening. Um, the party scene was not. That was very well <laughs> fine-tuned for me mm-hmm. in Winnemucca, Nevada. <laughs> I was a pro there. I was a pro. Believe me, I was a pro. But I, you know, I got involved with a, they were doing a peer education course for HIV and AIDS. And there were two uh, nurses for the university who got me, uh, who, when I went to the class, they wanted me to start teaching the class. So it was a class to teach people to teach AIDS Uh education. 
Okay. So peer education. And so I got involved with them and I taught the entire time I was there and got extremely involved in the LGBT community and AIDS prevention community. And it just, it bloomed from there. I went from the University of Puget Sound to Costa Rica and totally natural again well then yes the the, the obvious next step Mm -hmm. the obvious next step for a cowgirl is to go to Costa Rica (laughs) um and you you went there to work or to live uh to go to school I went to it was called the international um oh shoot I just heard ICAD international academy for anyways it's a human (laughs) rights school Uh I can't even remember now um, but I was I was really going to fine tune my Spanish. I was trying to get ah, better. Ah, nice. And everybody said, you know, you're supposed to go study abroad. So I yeah. thought, all right, right, figure this out. I went. I was supposed to go only for a couple months, and then I just kept staying, and I stayed nine months. Uh, I just I finished my my Spanish course, but I was volunteering for a clinic through my school, and. Uh, doing HIV AIDS prevention work at a medical clinic and right there in San Jose. And I got involved with a woman who ran the international radio for peace. And she represented central and South America in the Beijing women's conference. And I started doing radio programs for her Wow! and, um, really stayed because I was lost and didn't know what the heck I was going to do with my life. <coughs> Which when that happens, one goes to law school, right? That's <laughs> well, yeah, you think. I, mean, I came home from Costa Rica because I, I, I well, and num- numerous things, but I was getting homesick. I was getting tired of being, um, in a foreign country, just kind of exhausted with it. Um, I learned Spanish, but I didn't learn it well. It was never natural for me, so mm. I was struggling. But you, I also I got bit by a spider. Oh, no. <laughs> um, oh. Yeah, I lost most of it. Um, oh, yeah. You know, no practice. I came sure. home. No practice. But I, I visited Cuba while I was in Costa Rica um, and came home, came back home to Costa Rica, and then I – like I said, I was just, I was getting exhausted. I got to the point where I just needed to come home. Um, so was still it, was a spider know. bite serious? Do you have, do you have powers now? Um, <laughs> I was sitting in class and the teacher looked at me and said, Sucaro, which is face, your face is growing in Spanish. And I went, I looked at her and I thought, well, Okay. You're like, I didn't think my Spanish, Spanish must not be that good. Bad. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> my Spanish is getting really bad. And I had gone to school thinking I had a zit on my face. Oh, oh no. And it was not. It was a spider oh, bite. So over the weekend, I had visited a volcano, Arenal, over the weekend and slept in a hammock. And um, a spider head in my sleep bit in my face. Wow. And it, they. Next thing I knew, the school was, they took all my, they had a safe for the students with their money in it and all. They took all my cash, stuffed it in my pocket, stuffed me in a cab, and I show up at some medical clinic. They yank me out of the cab. (laughs) They take me running in, and I don't understand any of the medical terms in Spanish. Um, You know, I'm catching glimpses of things in between because the medical, the medicine and all that, I had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah, what did they do to you? 
but the one word I did recognize was naranja, which is a spider. Um, <laughs> and it was said a lot of times. So, um, yeah, it was, and I had contamination from the spider bite. Oh it had God. gotten infected. <gasps> and so, uh, but they shot me up with a whole bunch of stuff, stuck, stuck me on the street, gave me the last bit of my money. Wow. <laughs> which was not enough to get two bus rides home, which I realized I needed. Oh no. So I walked till I could get to the first bus ride and started taking a bus ride to my home. And my school was very well known for domestic violence work mm. in Costa Rica. And if you ever look up the numbers on domestic violence in Costa Rica, it will blow your mind. Oh, no. um, but they had done a bunch of training with us to help women if we, cause the, the numbers are astronomical. Oh of single women abused with their children and left. Um, but there was a woman on the bus who was beaten black and blue. No one was saying a word to her, of course, because that was typical down there. Wow. I'm distraught with a big old spider bite on my face and a bunch of meds in me that I didn't even know what they were. And I got up, I was like, all right, fine. So I got up, sat next to her, talked to her, gave her some resources Got home that night, started bawling, and thought, I need to go home. I'm done. That's amazing. I'm done. So you're, like, you're, you're recovering from you're a spider bite, lost that money, and you take the time to help this poor woman. That's well, impressive. It's, yeah, well, I was young and still full of hope and doing a lot of Latin American studies. And I, but like I said, I still didn't know what the heck I was going to do. So I came home. Instead of going back to the University of Puget Sound, I went to the University of Nevada. And because uh, I only had a couple, like two semesters left. I really had like five credits left. Um, it turned into a couple of semesters because they wouldn't take all my transfer credits. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. But, right. Um, I took a sociology of law class, though, at the University of Nevada, Reno. And uh, the professor who had a law degree who taught the juris, uh, he taught a PhD uh, judicial studies program at the university. I took his class and he pulled me aside and said, what are you doing with life? And I said, I don't know. He goes, well, you're going to law school. And I said, um, I don't know. I kind of thought about it at one point. And he said, no, you're going. Um, oh, okay. okay. Are you paying? Yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> and he is, he's, um, his name's Jim Richardson. He is very, very well known internationally for a lot of his lobbying work, his uh, PhD research and everything else. Um, but he, yeah, no, he gave me a job at the National Judicial College, uh, which was, a uh, program called the Grant Sawyer Center for Justice Studies. There were two women doing Daubert uh, research for evidence yeah. for jury trials. Wow. And uh, I had to call state court judges all over the country and interview them about how they uh, let in scientific evidence into their court. And next thing I knew, I was taking the LSAT because he told me I had to. And then I was off to law school, which was Golden Gate University oh, in San Francisco. Um, again, I had gotten kind of addicted to small, little schools and uh, that personal touch. But in uh, San Francisco was close to home for me because 
Nevada had become somewhere I wanted to be at that point. So uh, at the university, at Golden Gate University for law school, um, again, I continued my LGBT work. I worked for the AIDS Legal Referral uh, Clinic in San Francisco, did volunteer work for them, and then came home finally to practice law in Nevada. Nice. And when you came home, did you just start your own practice or did you join someone else or another firm? No. um, (laughs) During law school, I managed on the summers to get a job with an insurance defense firm in Reno. Um, And I had done work for them and they offered me a job right out of law school. Um, One year into that, I was miserable. uh, (laughs) Makes sense. uh, Someone who's out there like saving lives and making a difference. You're not the only person who's worked uh, in insurance defense. Insurance defense. Yeah. And yeah, no. (laughs) There's many of us, hopefully. Telling you how to bill, when to bill, auditing your bills, telling you you didn't do the work when you did do the work. The 250 billable hours a month, the wow. uh, the issue of if one more person spilled their own drink on the floor and sued the <laughs> business for it, um, or slipping on their own drink that they spilled, I was just, I was ready to pull my hair out. I couldn't understand the motives. I mean, I know what they were. They were money and greed, but the... The concept of it, I just couldn't hardly stand anymore. I enjoyed a few of my cases where justice really was done or I learned a lot from my experts on medical devices or something. But the slip and falls, the five-mile-per-hour car accidents, (laughs) I really – it was horrifying to watch and exhausting. And all I could – and I had refused to take a family law class in law school saying I was never going to do it. I was trying to be more, I had decided I was going to law school to grow up and not be so idealistic mm. and think I could do, you know, mushy, right. emotional stuff. Go with insurance. Where I, right. So I was trying to be more, I was going to make more money and I was going to do lawyer work, you know, but uh, I fell right straight into family law from there. So <laughs> I left insurance defense to go work for another firm um, to do family law. And, um, that partnership, I, I ended up being a law partner with that person. It wasn't a very good relationship. Um, and part law partnerships, business partnerships are relationships, no matter what people think, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. They're marriages. <laughs> yeah. So you had to go, but, so you had to go through a divorce of your law partnership at some point. I did. Oh. I did. Oh. Yeah. And it was, it was dramatic and it was emotional and it was horrible. Um, but (laughs) it was my start in family loss. So it, uh, and it was my first surrogacy case was at that firm. Oh, excellent. So So how did did that happen? That, um, so a, a couple came in, two men who had found a surrogate in Nevada and they lived in California and, they said, we need a surrogacy contract and your firm and you are gay friendly. Well, okay, but we don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Which was absolutely true. Um, the reality was we said, we don't know a thing about surrogacy. We don't have a template. We don't have a contract. We don't know, you know, I mean, there's a million things going on here. And they said, well, the reality is 
Neither does anybody else. We have called and we have called and uh, this was 2004 or three still, I guess. Um, four is when the baby was born. And they said, we, we can't find anybody. Well, at that time, Nevada's law read that, uh, that surrogacy was between, um, well, it said it had to be, the intended parents had to be married. And of course, in Nevada at that time, we did not have marriage equality. So they didn't, the statute didn't apply to them, but they had a surrogate in Reno, Nevada that they wanted to use and they lived in California. So the goal was to create a contract to have her relocate during the third trimester of the pregnancy to California, live with the men during that last trimester, give birth in California where... It would apply. <laughs> Which is crazy uh, now also because, you know, nobody, pretty much nobody does anything like that. They don't move the, the surrogates. They don't, you know. I, no, because we don't bank on it. It's too right, risky to right. bank on her being what, get there. What would have happened if she gave birth at the end of the second trimester? If she had given birth in Nevada. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the men was genetically related. Okay. So the court probably would have given him rights um, in California, we could have accomplished a second parent adoption, but we could not in Nevada. So we knew we had some safeguards in yeah, place. At least that. We knew that's good. We knew, yeah. And at that time, there was no such thing as great options on same sex parenting other than California. Um, you know, I mean, we had a few things around the country, but not much. And it was. I always, I give presentations on the, you know, this movement of parentage for the LGBT community. And it was really like pre 2000 and, um, about nine, which is California's around that timeline of California's, uh, domestic partnership laws, 2003, it, um, everything before that's prehistoric. I mean, we're talking the two thousands are it. This is where it all came from. So everything for all of our clients during that timeline, which I had gotten very savvy on in Nevada within just one year, um, was all belt and suspenders approaches. It was, okay, we've got to do estate planning for you because you don't have that option. We were looking, a lot of people in the country were looking at um, adult adoptions where partners were adopting each other to have lineage rights to each other to... um, circumvent parents and other family, giving them problems. I mean, there was guardianships put in place. I put in hundreds of guardianships uh, for one partner to have, uh, one partner would have genetic rights to their child or were able to adopt, but the other partner, we would do a guardianship to give them protection um, to have some decision-making over their child. If the bio parent ever withdrew that consent on that guardianship, it was in the trash. So everything we were doing came with huge risk, yeah. CYAs and I, you know, um, cover your butt letters so that we could say to people, look, legally what we may be doing, I mean, it's iffy, but it's the best we can do to get you there. 
And here's the belt and suspenders approach. Here's the 10 things we're going to do to try to give you protection. We were doing partnership agreements. We were doing parenting agreements, all of which we never knew whether or not they'd be enforceable or not. Did you ever find, did Um, one get tested? Did you find out? Yes. What happened? Well, so in 2013, we had a Supreme Court case in the state of Nevada. We've had them in California too. So there's some very definitive cases that are actually used as surrogacy cases also in California um, to to promote the concept that you can uh, contract into parental rights. You can say, I have the intent to be a parent. So in Nevada, in 2013, we passed our new reproductive law, which covered everything anyways, but at the exact same time. So literally October 1st, the new law went into effect, but October like 2nd, we had a Supreme Court case in Nevada that came out that couldn't use the new law because it wasn't in effect at the time of the decision that they were reviewing. But the Nevada went through all of our, our laws as was, and it was a lesbian couple who um, had entered into a parenting agreement who had uh, also had, had had a child through assisted reproductive. And the court analyzed it and said, yes, it's enforceable. And not only that, for all of those who have said that Nevada law only says you can have one mommy and one daddy, it's it's wrong. You can have two mommies oh. and have two daddies. And- Was was bio mom trying to take away non bio mom's rights, or was it some other? Okay, yep, yes. And she said, and the court said, no, non bio mom still a parent. Great. Yeah. Well, they sent it back down and said you missed the whole analysis because your district court, your analysis was wrong to start with because you started with the presumption that based on Nevada law that you couldn't have two moms. And the Supreme Court said, that's not true. You can. So go right. reanalyze your case based on the fact that you can. Okay. And so they quoted my law in there in a footnote saying, oh, and by the way, this is the trend in Nevada anyway. So we're not, we know we're right. But yeah, kind yeah. of an analysis. So your oh, law. Second, I was just saying, you just glossed right yeah, over that. My law, my whatever. Law. So, so let's go back a little bit. What, what started that? Where did that come from? Do they call it the so, Kim Surratt law? No, <laughs> I mean we call it that. Like informally, people know it as that, but we'll we'll no. start that trend. Um, so w- let's backpedal. So I had my first surrogacy case. Um, she did go to California. She did have the baby. Um, when I give my presentations and all over the place, uh, I use her pictures because I have her baby picture, and she is now what 14, hmm. 15 years old. Um, right in there. And so I get Christmas cards every year and it's the best thing ever. Um, but those guys have been, um, my fans ever since. But as soon as I did that contract, they used a fertility clinic in Nevada, by the way, that clinic called and said, well, wait a minute, you guys did a contract. And (laughs) we said, yeah, they said, we have been desperate for this. <laughs> uh, we don't know anybody else doing this and we need, you know, so it just started blooming from there. The business, you know, a few, a few, a few, but our law still said intended parents had to be married. Uh, they, it did say that uh, the intended parents had to be the egg and the sperm donor. 
um, or they, it said kind of a weird language about had to, the egg and the sperm had to come from them. And we got around it on the egg and sperm thing because yeah. How many surrogacies do we have where there isn't at least one of the parents genetically related? Very few there's embryo donations, but they're not, it's not as common. Um, usually only one of them's having an issue and the other one is still viable. And so we would, for our opposite sex couples, we were writing contracts saying, look, once the egg and sperm or the, um, the embryo is donated to them, it is there. So they are donating it. It is their egg and sperm. Oh, clever, clever. a property analysis, but Nevada law also, um, prevented compensation. It said it, you could not compensate. Um, it had to be reimbursement of, uh, living expenses only. So we were writing contracts where we were putting financial declarations in from the carriers, just like we would in a divorce saying her phone bill is this much. Her gym membership is this much. Her insurance is this much, all insurance, car insurance, you name it, home insurance. And her uh, her mortgage is this much. Her, yeah. Her mortgage is this much to show she's, she wasn't receiving compensation because her living expenses were, it was still under total living expenses. That's super. Um, Did that, did that, did those numbers add up to what was kind of like the market compensation anyway? Usually they exceeded it. exceeded it. Uh, the compensation was usually less. I mean, you, we rarely give carriers every dime of what right. they need for living expenses, right? Um, and if it was close, we would start digging for what else do you spend money on? <laughs> you know, um, your nails done every month. You know. <laughs> yeah. And, and as a weird side note, that that practice of doing those financial decks played out extremely well too for the UK, uh, for the United Kingdom, because they also were disallowing compensation and they loved our financial declarations because it showed exactly what they needed. And I ended up as an expert in a case for the UK for Colin Rogerson, um, who's an an amazing attorney, um, where we, we pitched that whole argument and it worked very well in the UK and it, it actually set the tone for the UK to get around that compensation problem there. Interesting. But, and that's still the, that's still how it is in the UK that they have to do. It still is. Correct. So they, they do still go through a whole analysis of, well, it's not really compensation because it's not enough to be actual compensation. Um, and it's reasonable in light of, her pain, her suffering, her babysitting costs, her everything costs, it's reasonable amount and it's not outrageous. If you went and paid a carrier a couple hundred thousand, the UK is going to jump on board and go, yeah, no, that's not <laughs> right. That's not reasonable. So they've gone into this reasonable analysis. But anyways, Nevada's law was still archaic. I mean, we had it. Uh, and it talk, our sperm donation statute still talked about, um, it was an artificial insemination statute, which that terminology is <laughs> also not used anymore. Right. Um, and it was about a donor donating to a married woman only. And so if you were a single woman or a gay couple or anything else, um, or just an unmarried couple, 
any donation or receipt of a sperm donation technically meant the donor still had rights, um, which is actually the old language that's still present in other states. Um, there was no embryo donation language, no egg donation language, and a very tiny little paragraph for surrogacy that didn't have any procedural guidance. But it allowed surrogacy, at least. At that, it did. So, well, and that's the thing. Nevada passed its statute. I think it was around '93, and it progressively was one of the most progressive surrogacy statutes in the country at the time. It was a big deal. I mean, that's pretty impressive because, like, the baby M case with her, you know, traditional surrogacy stealing the baby was like '88, and that's when all the other states, kind of New Jersey, New York, was like, no, no surrogacy, no compensated surrogacy. Yeah, Nevada was extremely progressive with its surrogacy statute. We just sat on it from there till modern times, <laughs> where we went. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and when you think about sat on it, that's not very long though for a statute. I mean, that's a decade. And we're sitting there going, it's archaic. But in the science realm of reproductive technology, it's archaic. So how did you become like the the lead of the, the charge to change the law? Well, I, um, so on the, a separate note, around the exact same time as my first surrogacy case, I had gotten involved in lobbying with the Nevada Justice Association, which is our, used to be our trial lawyers association. Um, we don't like to call it that, but you know, it's cause we do have a new name, but it, it gives some context to what it is. Um, so as the plaintiff's lawyers, but they had a domestic committee and the attorney that was running the domestic committee at the time, um, was, very well known. She's a lesbian who had done a lot of work in the LGBT community, um, was a huge part of bringing down the um, anti-sodomy law in Nevada. And she knew me and my LGBT work and my, you know, all that type of stuff. And she said, you need to get involved in this. And I said, I don't, I don't, know a thing about the legislature. I don't know how it works. I, my civics class from high school was a long time ago. Uh, I don't under, you know, I, I don't know anything. And she said, well, you don't need to, what we're going to teach you. But, um, I, was like, I don't, yeah, I was still a young lawyer. I was trying to leave my current firm. Um, things were not happy there. You know, I'm looking at her going, I don't have time for this. She said, let me tell you, one day this will pay off. One day you're going to look back at this and realize you did something amazing. And I promise you it'll be worth it. Well, you know, she, she drags me in, she gets me involved, and then she retires within a couple of years. She tricked you. This will be amazing for me because I get to retire. Yeah. <laughs> retired from private practice. She did go to the DA's office, but, you know, she was completely out of the family law arena other than, I mean, she was doing abuse and neglect cases for the county. Um, but she wasn't doing everyday domestic work anymore. And so she wasn't part of NJA anymore and she wasn't part of the lobbying anymore. But I learned a lot from her within a few years. And I just stayed on with the domestic committee 
And each session had come up and it was a lot of work. Uh, Nevada only has a legislative session every two years and only 120 days. So, um, you know, I would kind of, I'd get to the end of a session, I'd swear it off and say, I'm never doing it again. And then the next session would come and I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Like you forget, yeah, you forget how painful it was and how miserable the legislature can be and politics can be and gross and everything else. But um, through those years, I was only playing defense on our domestic bills. We were reviewing everything, killing things that needed to be killed. We weren't proposing any bills. Um, Everything that would come up at our legislature was always just some constituent or some new legislator had some bone to pick with family court and was going to make it where there was no alimony or there was no child support anymore. You know, something, something wild and crazy every single time. Um, and grandparent grandparents rights groups were one of my biggest problem children through those years. Um, (laughs) there is a U.S. Supreme court case called us, uh, versus Troxel. And I know it very well. I probably have it almost memorized at this point. But um, just that small constitutional thing about parents being able to choose how to raise their children without interference, you know, grandparents would love it to all go away so they have complete control. But (laughs) anyways, um, I lobbied and I lobbied and I left that law firm and opened my own firm in 2007. And at that point I was still doing more and more and more surrogacy work because of the fertility clinic. And I got hooked up. Um, I got a phone call from a clinic in Las Vegas that said, we hear a rumor that you're doing this work in Nevada and we don't know anybody else that is. And so I started doing work with the fertility center of Las Vegas. And then in 2000 and nine, Nevada, in my lobbying efforts, um, I got brought in to help Senator Parks in Nevada with his bill for domestic partnerships in Nevada. And I testified and I have one of my absolute favorite photos ever of me at the legislature. I'm one of the only ones, me at the legislature with Senator Parks, uh, testifying on the domestic partnership bill. And it was one of the most emotional, impactful things I had ever done. And I walked away and I called Myra Sheehan, who's that attorney I said, got me involved in lobbying and then went to the DA's office. (laughs) And I said, and said, you were right. right. That moment happened. That moment happened. And when it passed, um, it was an absolute party. It was just a crazy, crazy, wonderful oh. party. And was that your first time testifying? Oh no, I had testified lots of times. Okay, but on like silly things, oh. like I said, playing defense to kill dumb oh, yeah. things. Right. Or I had I really and- gained a reputation for going in and just being a resource to legislators for family law topics. Yeah. Where, because most it's of the time they helpful. didn't understand it or they didn't understand how it would work in real life. And a lot of my testimony was never positional. I never took a position on many of the things I testified on. I just would go in and say, Hey, as a family law attorney, if you make this change, it means this, it means that this is how I have to practice. If you don't, then 
um, this is how we practice now. And they would go, okay, so what do you want? I go, I, that's a policy decision for you. It's not for me. Yeah. You know, good example is adoptions um, for the number of, of levels of consanguinity. So we go out three layers of consanguinity and say, you do not have to have a home study in Nevada. So to the third degree, they wanted to change it to fourth degree and they called me in and well, it, um, an attorney had proposed it to go to fourth degree. And they said, what do you think? And I said, I, Hey, I, this is what it means. It goes out to grandmothers, grandfathers. And I listed the relatives. And right now we don't have to have a home study beyond that. If you change it to fourth degree, that means we go out to this level before we have a home study. And I said, so what do you want? And I said, I don't, that's, I don't, whatever it is, I'm going to practice under third degree or fourth degree. That's a policy decision mm-hmm. for you. At what point do you feel we need to have a home study, that we need to investigate these people further? And yeah. so th- that's the kind of testimony I would often give. Were you, like for the domestic partnership one, were you nervous or are you just like cool as a cucumber by the time? You're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm used to this. I wasn't nervous in my participation or my lobbying or my testifying. I was nervous in its ability to pass it went, it, it was vetoed and we overcame the veto. So oh, wow. oh. sitting and watching and waiting for the votes to come in, I was an absolute wreck. Um, yeah. but because I wanted it to pass. <laughs> so no, not in testifying for whatever reason, legislature is different from my cases. Um, Well, actually, I should say in any presentation I've ever given in teaching, in court or the legislature, if I'm nervous and you see me nervous, it's because I'm not 100 percent confident in what's coming out of my mouth. When I am confident about what's coming out of my mouth, you won't see me nervous. Um, It happens in divorce cases where I'm having to pitch for a client that I don't necessarily like. (laughs) (laughs) The the sweat starts rolling. Well, it's a shaky, Uh, I usually get shaky hands. Um, And one time one of our judges said, Miss Rat, you have the worst poker poker face on the I was going to (laughs) say, now you've announced it to the world too. I absolutely have a horrible poker face. Um, or if the one or two times, it's rare because I'm pretty obsessive over preparing. But if I'm not completely prepared, you'll probably see my poker face a teeny bit too. Uh, but the legislature, when you go in there, you know, when you, when you have to talk to a panel of Supreme Court justices or you have to talk to a judge in a courtroom, um, you're on equal footing for arguing out the law, right? Um, and so you do get a little nervous that maybe the judge knows a case I don't know or a statute I should have known. And, you know, you're sitting there going, okay, I'm sweating this a little bit. We're going to argue it and see where it goes. At the legislature, you usually, on a legal topic, know more than who you're talking to. Um, there are lawyers within the legislature, but a lot of them aren't family law lawyers. Um, so, you know, they're asking me questions that are my everyday things I deal with. You know, that's second nature to me, 
But for them, it's we need we need this basic information. Domestic partnerships, um, of course, you're dealing with more of a legal, well, political strife on whether we should have had them, right? Um, but no, I don't know. I don't think twice about that stuff. I just get up and do it. <laughs> when I believe in it, I just fight for it. And I don't. And should I have been nervous? Maybe. I don't know. Um, no, it's great. So domestic partnership went well, then to surrogacy. Then on to surrogacy. So by 2013, um, I finally sat down and, well, the year before, I had to do a lot of planning before the 2013 session. Um, I finally got up the nerve. I thought, you know what? This law needs to change. It is archaic. We've got to get it changed. We have domestic partnerships in Nevada, for goodness sakes. It's time. Um, I had become good friends with the chair of the assembly judiciary, Jason Frierson, and he, I called him, he said he'd be happy to carry a bill for me. I called the Nevada justice association. They were happy to support it and I needed, but I had to sit down and write it and figure out what it was going to be. Um, so I had a lot of work into drafting because I didn't want the Uniform Parentage Act carte blanche. I didn't want the ABA Model Act carte blanche. They both needed some, I needed something from both of them. And I needed some other things that I thought needed to be included that weren't included in either of those at the time. So for the second time in 10 years, you were starting from scratch, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally from yeah. scratch. It- were you on your own or did you have help with make, with writing it? Um, well, I, I started the draft. I then sent it to, um, I, I sent it to our legislative council bureau, who's our drafting body for the legislature through Jason, because Jason was sponsoring the bill. I, um, they worked on it some to get it more fine-tuned what I needed. Now, mind you, a lot of our lang- law, the language was pre-written within the UPA and the ABA. I just, I cut the pieces I wanted and I mixed and I matched. Yeah. I wasn't trying to do the whole <laughs> Uniform Parentage Act. I just wanted the reproductive part of it. Um, I, and then I sent it to NCLR, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, uh, for them to review and worked with them on changes they'd like to see within it. Um, to fine tune it some more. And then I added some of my own stuff that procedurally I, I really wanted. Um, one key element was about uh, venue. And none of the other bills or model acts really had the language I needed or wanted in that, which I really just made it super generic. Said I could file. <laughs> what, did, what did you want? I wanted that I could file in, in any district court in the state of Nevada as long as the state had jurisdiction. And so I mainly because I didn't want to file in our two most crowded courts, Washoe, Reno, and Las Vegas, uh, because they take too long. And, <laughs> and I needed it to go faster. And so... Right? There's a baby on, right, on the way. Right, exactly. So... Um, once I got final language together, uh, Jason proposed the bill and we lobbied it and I worked my butt off that session for the, cause I had to actually proactively go argue for a bill for once instead of just be a resource on a bill or kill a bill. Um, the, 
it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be. It actually was, it was, mind you, we picked a session. I picked a session that I knew was extremely, it was a, uh, Democrats were in the lead. They had the majority. Uh, Jason was the chair of the judiciary committee. Um, several of the Republicans had used me as were my clients once upon a time. Um, <laughs> That's always helpful. <laughs> right? helpful. Um, and, and from a perspective, I just, I think it was just the timing was ideal. It was one of those times somebody had tried to propose the Uniform Parentage Act in several years before, like around 2009, and it failed. And I didn't argue in favor of it yet. I knew the timing wasn't right. Um, I sat in Senate Judiciary Committee to testify on it. I testified favorably. I didn't, you know, I wasn't killing it by any means on the reproductive part of it. But it had the entire Uniform Parentage Act. It had a bunch of other problems, in my opinion. And I got done testifying. And at that time, the chair of the Senate Judiciary was Mark Amaday, who is our one of Nevada's congressmen, federal Congress, uh, U.S. congressman now. At the time, he was in our state legislature. And Mark Amaday, when I got done, Senator Amaday looks at me and he goes, Kim Surratt, he goes, only you could say the word sperm out loud <laughs> that many times and not flinch. <laughs> and I thought, oh my, I should I have not? <laughs> was I supposed to be embarrassed by our bodies? <laughs> I wasn't embarrassed. Was I supposed to be embarrassed? Right. I don't understand. Right. But it died because it wasn't ready. In 2013, it was ready. We, we were ready. Um, interestingly enough, our biggest opponents at that time were women's rights groups. Oh, why is that? Why? They wanted me to change language within the bill where, for example, I had taken ASRM uh, guidelines for big parts of my drafting. Uh, for example, the suggestion that a woman be 21 years old. They were very upset because at 18, a woman has the right to make decisions. I looked at them and I said, you do realize I can flip that feminist argument on you in two seconds flat. Because as a feminist, I want to protect women, not harm women. And at 18, you cannot convince me that an 18-year-old is mature and ready to carry a baby for another person. And, and part of it is you had to already had a baby, right. meaning you had right. a child in high school. Well, that's right. exactly. Um, they, we didn't put that part in to the bill because the hope is the SRM guidelines would still rule the day. But, um, and I had already gotten told that they were going to be upset about that language too. Uh, they didn't like intended parents having to go through psych evaluations because they didn't want it to be grounds for intended parents to be denied to be parents. Um, but even under ASRM guidelines, it's not in it. It's not, they can't, it's a psycho, it's a counseling session. It's is my understanding of the ASRM guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Um, but do you know anything that laid into women and their choice? Um, we took the age out. 
So instead of dropping it to 18, we went with the perspective of, okay, we take the age requirement out, then the doctors are going to self-regulate under the ASRM, hopefully. Um, I thought it was better than someone being able to walk into a doctor's office and say, but the statute says 18 and I'm 18 and you can't use it against me versus it being silent on it. So um, there was a lot of struggle back and forth. Um, I had originally wanted to try to include traditional surrogacy um, there was a assemblyman who was a physician who um, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah. And for the, for anyone not familiar, traditional surrogacy being where the surrogate is genetically related to the, the child. Right. In case this is your first episode. Right. <laughs> well, and so, you know, and I have my own perspective on that. Uh, you know, yeah, you can point to baby M um, and say, oh, it went horrible. Traditional is a bad idea. But baby M was in a circumstance where there was no law. There was no guidance. Um, and yes, she was genetically related. <laughs> and so you can't just point to that in a circumstance where there is a law regulating with all the other protections in place of having to have a contract, having to have um, certain, you know, having to have it before you actually undergo the transfer. Once you add all the other protections in, then you are just talking about an abstract argument about whether or not she will have a harder time walking away when she's genetically related versus she's not. But there's no scientific proof of it yet. But it was still safer to just not include it. it because when you analyze what you're going to do at a legislature, it's not always about what you want. It's about what will pass. So you don't, you can't ever go in expecting to get a hundred percent of what you want. So like I said, we took out the age, we didn't put traditional in there. Um, we were very careful about the language on the psych stuff where there were, requirement. And then the only other big, the big part too, was, um, whether or not there should be language about both sides having attorneys or not. And historically up till 2013, with all the surrogacies I had done under our old law, I had gotten into an extreme mode of playing fix it. It was these people finding surrogates on Craigslist trying to do their own contract, trying to match themselves. And then they've got it completely screwed up. She's pregnant. She's trying to blackmail them. And they're coming to me going, what do we do now? Or they'd show up at a courthouse and go, well, they show up at a hospital and say, this is our surrogate. And the court, the hospital's going, okay, uh, prove it. Prove she's a mm. surrogate. Well, they may or may not have had a contract. They may have done a contract, but done it badly. They didn't know to go to the court. They didn't know they needed an order. They didn't know what to do with it. And because there was so little guidance in our law, people just thought they could just do it on their own. Or they would find surrogates, like I said, through Craigslist with no background checks. They were you know, trying to be cheap about it. Not that this doesn't still happen. But there were, it was significant pre or law change. 
And with the new law, it's dramatically different. And I really think one of the key, key elements is both sides having to have lawyers has made all the difference in the world. At a legislature, the, they look at it and go, well, is that just you trying to make money? Because legislatures, especially non-lawyers, when you have non-lawyers as a legislator, uh, a lot of times they look at the lawyers and go, yeah, you make too much money. Uh, and that needs to stop. And they love attorney's fees uh, provisions that cap how much lawyers can make and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a fight on that one, too. Were they were arguing for caps for attorneys? No, they were arguing it should, we should take the language out that both the carrier yeah, and the parents had to have a lawyer. Got it. So that we didn't have to make money off of them. And I said, well, I'm not trying to make money. I'm just telling you what goes wrong in all these cases when the carrier didn't have a lawyer. Usually the intended parents do. Often they do. But when the carrier doesn't, it's bad. Um, and it's duress. And it's no one can explain to them about going to the court. No one stops them before they show up at the hospital and say, we don't have any of our stuff done. So it wasn't a huge argument. It wasn't a huge fight, but it was something I had to go deal with. And we got through and it's still in there. Thank goodness. But um, I, there was a dramatic change with the old law to the new law and the number of fix-it cases I'm doing. And I don't <laughs> know. Good. So very, very few, hopefully. Very now. few. And some of that's a growth in agencies. Some of that's a growth in decent agencies. Nevada has seen its share of bad, uh, bad agencies. We had Serogenesis. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that name. Was an agency out of California that was also operating in Nevada, where the executive director stole all the money out of the trust account. Uh, um, that uh, was pre the new law. Um, not that the new law would have stopped that, but we had seen enough bad things between that and then later down the road with the. Um, well, actually, it was. I think that was pre law. <laughs> it was with Teresa Erickson with the Ukraine yes. stuff. Um, there was enough fraud. And that, that's the, the preview for our, our right. next episode <laughs> where you are, um, doing wiretaps for the FBI and our next interview, it gets nice and nice and juicy exactly. with that, that craziness. So we had seen enough fraud that my argument at the legislature for a new law wasn't too bad. <laughs> it actually went pretty smooth. Um, we, and I got a lot of the Republicans on our side. We didn't have, there's a few that did not vote for it, um, who are just extreme religious fanatics or, you know, anti doing anything, uh, technology wise to have babies. Um, but for the most part, it was, it was so picturesque cause I got everything I wanted really. Um, and the we were able to were able to file in any district court in the state of Nevada. We can use embryos. Intended parents can be. Um, it's a gender neutral statute. Uh, it can be a single intended parent or a couple. The couple can be married or unmarried. Um, we can compensate legally. We can. Um, 
get a pre-birth order and we can get a post-birth order. I can get both or I can get only one. Um, procedurally, I have guidance on how to get it. Uh, it tells you exactly what to do. So we gained so much out of that change. That's fantastic. And you, I mean, this whole interview, you speak just very like, yeah, so I did this, but I mean, it can't be overrated. Like how much you're kind of a hero in this story that you've changed this environment to make it so much easier for people who desperately wanted to be parents to, to meet, to have that dream fulfilled. It made a big change. It made a big difference in our state. There's no doubt. Jason Frierson was a huge part of it. Um, He's currently the speaker of our assembly, uh, the majority leader for the assembly. And uh, he was a huge, huge part of it. And not just me. And Nevada Justice Association was a huge part of it. I learned a lot from a lot of people over time. But I, it's not as simple as Kim just went and did it. It's there was a lot of pieces and people and <laughs> fair enough, fair and enough, organi- fair enough. organizations involved to help me accomplish it. But um, it is uh, we we still might hashtag it hashtag Kim's law. Kim changed the world. I'm not quite sure which. We have to decide. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag Kim changed the world. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing the the story of, I mean, it's incredible that all this was accomplished and everything you've done to, to make the world a better place. And we're excited that there's another episode with you where we will talk about things gone wrong, seriously, and your, yeah, and your involvement to try to, to make the world a better place when things are, are not going the way they should. Yeah, we'll talk about those nasty (laughs) fraud cases. Yeah. That we're, gonna, yes. that we're getting ahead of. Well, right. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Well, we look forward to talking to you thank soon, you. but thank you for today. Thank you so much. You guys are wonderful. Lesson of the day. I actually am not sure what the lesson of the day is. Like Maybe knowing the right people, waiting for the right time, uh, being the expert. I mean, so it seems like a lot of factors had to kind of had to click into place to, for everything to happen. But I guess it's kind of, uh, you know, preparation meets opportunity, right? That perseverance too. being that expert and getting involved. And then when the right opportunity comes being willing to, to step up and show up. So, um, thanks. Thank you, Kim. Yeah. And I mean, as always, I, I know I love to tell my corny jokes, but we always appreciate you all showing up and listening to us. Um, even though we don't get to see you, nor do you get to see us, which is probably good because I may or may not be in my pajamas right now. I also really like uh, your, your perseverance and always asking people to like review us that you know, I know. Just keep I trying. do. I, Eventually, I someone's going to be like, "Okay, okay, one I'm going to do it." Maybe like, she'll stop asking. If goodness I do it. sake, if a hundred of us do it, if two hundred do it, if five thousand of us do it, maybe, maybe now she will stop. But no, we do appreciate all of your your uh, reviews on iTunes, your comments, and again, your calls at our hotline three zero three nine nine seven one nine zero three because we want this show to be what you want it to be, and we appreciate it and love that you came by to listen to us. Thanks so much. 